Good morning. I don't like using that little headphone or whatever you want to call it, so hope everybody can hear me okay. I'll stand in one place this morning. I, I do so because I'm with much trembling and trepidation. I stand up here. Um, it's one thing standing before a group of people, but it's another thing to stand up here and have the expectations to handle the Word of God rightly as, as I should. I appreciate y'all being here this morning, even after you got the email um, of the notice, or, or you can call it the warning that um, Paul wasn't going to be here, but um, it is kind of interesting if you'd ever come to an elders meeting and Paul tells us there's a date that he needs someone to preach, and you hear the crickets. <laughs> I drew the short straw this time, and actually, if, if you notice, um, this is... Um, Job sermon number one, there will be a uh, follow-up at the end of, of July, on July 30th, and we'll, we'll go back to the book of Job and kind of see how Job has progressed. Um, we'll do that in Job 23. But um, let's pray before we get started here this morning. Father, we, we thank you for your presence here this morning. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to come now among us. Father, open our ears. Father, open our hearts. Help us to hear what you would say this morning through your Spirit. Father, we would pray against any distractions or anything that uh, would hinder us this morning from hearing what you would have to say. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, your word is powerful, and Father, your word is sharp, and we understand that it will uh, cut to the innermost part of our very being. And Father, you tell, you, you tell us your word is not idle. And so, Father, we, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, you notice um, the topic today is um, suffering. And it'll be, like I said, today and then a few weeks from today, we'll go back at the topic suffering. I am by no means an expert or have suffered um, as much as probably some of you have out there. But I hope today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll, we're going to talk about suffering, how to respond, um, what we can learn during times of suffering, not only for ourselves, but for other people. And um, both are just as important um, when we suffer and when we're trying to help somebody else suffer. Um, suffering, I uh, heard this one time, and it's kind of stayed with me for many years. Um, suffering is um, you're either in suffering, you're coming out of suffering, or you're getting ready to suffer. That's, that's the cycle that you go through. Um, and so times of suffering for anyone, they're inevitable. They're going to happen. They're going to happen. And Scripture will tell us that. Scripture is not um, vague on this at all. It does not shy away. The Apostle Paul wrote, Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus um, told his disciples, John 16.33, in the world you have tribulation." 
in the book of Job, which we'll be studying this morning primarily. Um, chapter 14, verse 1, Job says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. And again in chapter 5, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. So there's really no other path. When you come to Christ, um, you will encounter times of suffering. There really is no other path to heaven. In fact, the only qualification to, to be a sufferer is that you be human. There are two things which, I can, which I, I, we can agree on when it comes to suffering is that it, the suffering is real and suffering hurts. It's painful. Suffering, is, as we all can testify to, comes in so many various forms. Um, whether it's uh, death of a loved one, whether it's some type of disease, uh, our health problems, accidents, uh, persecution, our own sin. <clears throat> but the focus probably, well, focus will be this morning is not so much those type of sufferings, which they are types of suffering, but what about the suffering that comes when we can't put an explanation to it? We can't put an answer to it. Could we call it innocent suffering? Is there, is, is there such a thing? So we need to remember these two truths as in suffering. Um, I will repeat myself a couple times today in this, but um, remember this. Um, Satan's purpose in all of suffering is to destroy your faith. Second, in all of suffering, the design of God is to strengthen your faith. So we can say that we, that no Christian will face any difficulty apart from the ever-loving and constant watch of our Heavenly Father. So to kind of get us started this morning, I, I'm not going to jump right into the book of Job, but I do want to go to, to um, the book of James. Kind of um, get our appetite started in this direction. Book of James, uh, James, very first or second verse, he jumps right in and talks about suffering. Um, in fact, verses 2 through 4 in the first chapter of James reads like this. Verse 2, consider, or some versions say count, and that word count is probably a little better word because count is, is a financial term. It means to evaluate it says, count it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And what's the word that jumps out at us right here? Of all those words, the little three-letter word, joy. And joy with trials seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? They don't go together. In fact, I, I, I tried to find a better word for joy, so I looked it up in the Greek, and the Greek says, well, joy means delight. So that didn't help at all. You know, we want to live in such a way that we don't have trials. We have to get rid of tri these trials so we can have joy. But James doesn't say that. He says if you want pure joy... 
You're going to find it in your trials. And we scratch our head and say, what? But the way we can count it, pure joy, is not by removing ourselves from the trouble, but it's our attitude in the trouble. And we say, well, how, how is that? Well, verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Because you know. What do we know? So we have to bring how we feel under the authority of what we know. As a Christian, what do we know? You know, feelings are real. I won't deny that, but feelings are not reliable. You know, if we continue to let our feelings rule, then all of which we know will be servant to what we know. Our feelings will rule, not the word of God. Yes, Jesus said, um, we're going to have troubles. But what, did he else, what else did he say? I left us out. He says, take courage. I have overcome the world. That's, that's what we should know. You know. This world will do its worst, but Jesus has overcome. We need to look at uh, verse 4 of this chapter in James, first chapter of James. Let me read this. It says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So what's God's purpose in trials? He tells us right here, maturity, completeness, and that you be deficient in nothing. You know, and here again, count it all joy is a, it's, it seems to be a brutal, brutal word to use when it comes to trials. But count it all joy, that's how we are to respond to trials. And we can't have that response unless we understand the end. And that the end is that we are being made more and more like Jesus Christ. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. And so here we have the revealed purpose of God in trials. This is part of it right here. He gives us these things, maturity, completeness, that you not be deficient in nothing. But there is a part about trials that we may not know, but the death... <coughs> A lot of times there is a secret purpose to God alone, and we may not understand that, but that's okay. You know, in trials, God grows us most in grace. As we look this morning in the first two chapters of Job, we're going to count a couple of challenges that we're going to run into. One, trials will reveal what we really love. And two, what or who we value the most. What do we really love and what do we value the most? You know, our reason tells us to value the world. Our senses tell us to value pleasure and ease. But through trials, faith tells us to value God above all things. Of course,
quote here from Puritan Thomas Manton. He said that while all things are quiet and comfortable, we live by sense rather than faith. You know, faith, faith has God as the object. Our senses have pleasure and ease as its object, as its goal. Someone also once says, it says, the worth of a soldier is never known in times of peace. Another quote, Warren Worsby. He comments on these verses here in James. He says, our value determines our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material, material and physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. Before we leave the book of uh, James here, go real quick to the fifth chapter, verse 11. Here James talks about Job. He says in verse 11, We count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So James teaches us that there is a blessing after we have endured. This perseverance, this endurance, there is a blessing. His example he gives us is Job. In Job's case, we learn that God is full of compassion and is merciful. Our sufferings bring a merciful and compassionate response from our Heavenly Father. But if you're familiar at all with the book of Job, and I'm sure most of you are, you know, Job did cry greatly in distress, in defense of himself, and he cried out for deliverance for himself. You know, faithfulness through trials does not mean an absence of tears or pain or lament. So, let's, um, let's turn to the book of Job, and we're going to be in the first two chapters, as your bulletin says. And um, a couple of things we're going to be looking at, a couple of questions. How did Job respond to this trial? What can we learn from his response? And thirdly, who was all involved in this trial with Job? We were going to notice that Job's people that were with him are going to be the same people that are with us, whether we're in a trial or we're helping somebody in a trial. So what, what do we know about Job? First five verses of Job chapter 1. If you would listen along or read. There was a man in the land of Uz, and that's Uz, that's not Oz, Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. It came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So Job is a good man. 
There's nobody like him, at least in the East. He was blameless, devout, upright. He feared God, and he rejected what was wrong. He turned away from evil. Job is of a godly character. Job lived in such a way that is consistent with being a Christian. No, Job is not considered to be perfect or sinless, but his genuine righteousness is very important in this book. He also attracts the attention of God. God is delighted in him. In fact, God says there is none like him on the earth. So when you get that type of uh, encouragement, uh, that's the best you can get. When God says there's none like him on the earth. And actually God repeats himself. He says it once in chapter 1, verse 8, then he repeats himself in chapter 2, verse 3. As we read, Job is prosperous, blessed with many possessions, and we all see that as divine favor. God's hand, God's hand of favor. He has seven sons, three daughters. He has servants and livestock in abundance. Job is wealthy in family and possessions. Job is a praying man. Job prays for his children, as I hope all dads in here would. Job's thought is, if his children somehow know they have sinned or cursed God, he wants to make it as right as possible for them as any dad would. He would pray to God and ask God to accept his offering. He prays, would you have mercy on my children? We would say that Job had it made in the shade. But then one day, and I will... Um, kind of summarize verses 13 through 19 in the um, first chapter in order to save some time. But basically, there are four calamities that come all in rapid succession. And uh, as you've noticed, hardly one messenger finishes talking before another one comes and shoves him out of the way and, and tells him of another calamity. Verses 13 and 15 of chapter 1, we have a Sabaean um, raiding party come and take the oxen and donkeys and kill all the servants but one. In verse 16, the sheep are destroyed by what um, basically can, can be described as lightning. All the servants except one. Verse 17, the Chaldeans show up and take the camels and kill all the servants but one. So you've got 11,000 animals now are gone. And then finally, in verse 18 and 19, all of his children were killed by, they say, a great wind. We could say a tornado. So this is the climax that those dearest to Job are all gone. So one day the floor gives way. All of what Job possessed, his children are gone. They're dead. If this is not enough, later on, Joe will be attacked by Satan. This is one attack by Satan, taking all his property, but then there's another uh, attack by Satan where his health is put in jeopardy. 
In fact, Job is covered with um, sores or boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And we can read in chapter 7 where actually worms are involved. Maybe we could say maggots. And then we have this strange scene in chapters 1 and 2 where between God and Satan where we are, we are allowed, as a reader, we're allowed to eavesdrop into this conversation. And we're going to look back at that in just a minute. So Job's family and prosperity is removed. Gone just like that. Snap of a finger. All of his wealth, his 401k, his retirement, his Social Security check, his insurance policies, his job, no business, all gone. One day, all gone. Just he and his wife. You know, this makes no sense. And who does it happen to? It happens to the most God-fearing man in the East. In fact, God says there's none like him. So we would expect a little special attention here, right? A little favor. You know, we understand when the ungodly suffer. It was coming to them, we say. But why does a godly man suffer? So what was Job's response to this entire calamity? And you've heard this most of your Christian life. But what a response. Would I respond this way? Would I even be able to speak? But anyway, verses 20 and 22 of chapter 1. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with, God with any wrongdoing. We, Job is not being stoic here. He's not keeping a stiff upper lip. As, you, as we read this verse, we, there is grief, there is mourning. And yet he has a joyful acceptance of the will of God in his life. You know, we can stand before God and be stripped of everything we have and still not lack anything because of who God is as our Father. So what do we learn from here? What are some observations, maybe some applications? First is this. It's naive to think that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. There is no simple answer to where you're good, bad, you get bad, and you're good, you get good. We say good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Always and without fail. That will not work. It's just not going to work. Um, scholars speak of divine retribution, and it is a valid principle, but we may mistakenly make this an unconditional fact and presume God's action and judge a person's condition or ours falsely. God is not bound by man-made beliefs. And the second one is, observation here is, is what's at stake here for us? And this is a hard one. It is a heart-probing question. 
that will pull at the strings of your heart. In our time of suffering, will it become apparent to all that we value and love God more than anything? Our children, our possessions, our family, whatever, our health, that's what was given to Job. And that's the hard question here that's put forth here. Will I be faithful? Will you be faithful if tragedy strikes? Or are we just in it for the blessings? Tim Keller made this quote. He says, if you love anything in this world more than God, the weight of our expectations on this object will eventually give way and our hearts will be broken. If we love God more than anything, that object will eventually come crashing down because it cannot give you what God can give you. And when that happens, if all of our faith was in that object, we're going to have a broken heart and it's going to be hard to recover. As I was preparing this, I thought of the words Jesus um, asked Peter. Do you love me more than these? We move to Mrs. Job. You know, at any time we're in a trial, other people are going to be involved. We may feel alone, but other people are going to be there involved in our um, are in our trial and our suffering. And they may not be much help, but they're going to be involved. In fact, they may make it worse. But the question is, will they be helpful or will they cause even more pain? We have Mrs. Job, and we could say our spouse, our family here. And um, if you had a opportunity to have your words recorded in the Bible, what would you say? I doubt if you would um, say what Miss Job said. And what we know about her is written in chapter 2, verse 9. She says to her husband, after all of this mess, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And it's interesting because this is the very thing that Satan told God that Job would do. He'll curse you to your face. So she's kind of agreeing with Satan here. But she can't take it anymore. She's, she's had it. And I, I, I really believe she deserves some sympathy here and not so much um, correction. You know, as a mother, what has she lost? Her ten children. What is closest to a mother's heart? Not only that, she sees her husband who has worshipped God faithfully. And he sits there covered in ashes and boils all over his body. From his head to his feet. So I think she needs some space here. If, if words come out of her mouth that um, should not. 
You know, Job, Job said, he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. But he's, but he's saying not that you are a foolish woman. You speak like a foolish woman. So when we are comforting people in the midst of suffering, we need to remember um, things will be said that are not exactly correct. These people are in pain. They're hurting. Job 6.26 reads, Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? There are a lot of words for the wind when people are in pain, in the center of pain. And as we come alongside them, we need to discern what words are for the wind, which are in no need of correction. Let them go off into the wind. Hopefully better things will be said later on. But we have to take a warning here, too, because um, uh, when we are in affliction or someone is in affliction, uh, it can become a great excuse for all sorts of behavior that we would not otherwise get away with. So we can't use that as an excuse for any bad behavior. So Job's three friends show up. We could say this is the church community. We want to compare it. This is the church community. They show up. Let's read chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. These are Job's comforters. Comforters. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity they had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Good idea. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him. But they saw that his pain was very great. So Job's three friends started out well. <clears throat> they came to share in his Job's sufferings and in grief, and uh, they came. At least they came. They showed up. When Job was hurting, they showed up. And they came to comfort him. I believe they had the best of motives. After all, Job had a sense of being all alone in his grief and suffering. And these friends sit silent for seven days. And that's the best thing they did the whole time. Because when they opened their mouth, um, they were unkind, they were impatient, and they were brutal. John Piper puts it, put it this way. He says, they were using good theology with which to do bad stuff. In other words, they were using real truths and they were applying them poorly. And they did it for if, 24 chapters they did this, these three friends. There's a fourth friend also. That's for a different day. You know, their only conclusion is that your horrible suffering is because of your horrible sin. 
They basically called Job a hypocrite. Their conclusion, their conclusion, their small space, they put God in a box here. Man-made beliefs, we mentioned that. Um, the righteous are rewarded and the unrighteous are punished. It's that simple. You know, they were wrong in their criticism paired with a wrong interpretation of Job's life. You know, Job sums up their help. Chapter 16, verse 1, by calling them miserable comforters with windy words. Job needed compassion, not advice, at that particular point in his suffering. And we can say that well-intentioned counselors sometimes can be wrong. We as Christians sometimes can be wrong. So we're in a position here again to respond to someone who we are trying to comfort. How should we respond? What can we learn from Job's friends here, his buddies? And, and we, we must apply, be aware of applying our, our assumptions to a problem that we know very little about. In fact, our little short arms can't reach that problem. It's too deep for us. We don't know this person's heart. We don't know fully this person's heart. We use scripture. We let God do the talking. And this is what we can read ourselves before we come. Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any, any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So the implication here is that sufferers in turn become comforters. We become comforters to others. That's, we see one of the purposes of God in trials here. That you learn from your suffering so that you can share with someone else. This is the way the church community becomes a place where we get enormous support and help. We're there to comfort the sufferer and not so much to tell them why they're suffering. Because, like we said, we may not exactly know. But we're there to comfort and share with them the comfort we have received, hopefully in our times of trials and tears. As we read, God is the Father of all compassion and comfort. You know, love and counsel will come. We'll have an opportunity when the time is right. But when we come with loving counsel, and that word loving is, is important here, um, we best be prayed up. And we come in humility, and we come in kindness, and hopefully we come in wisdom. And secondly, when we um, come, to, come to help people, we need to be ready to weep with those who weep. That's what Scripture tells us to do. It's a part of being all things for all people. It's for their benefit. It's for their uplifting. 
I recall the story, and I've remembered this over the years. I wish I could tell you the author of it, but I, I can't. Um, but I remember the story, this story about a little boy who was looking at his window one day at his elderly neighbor sitting on the porch. And it was a little unusual because in the months and years before, every time he would look out that window, he would see this elderly man and his wife sitting there. But today, this little boy noticed that this elderly man sat all alone because his wife had recently died. So the little boy told his mother, um, he said he was going to visit the elderly man. And so in a matter of time, he showed back up, and his mother said, well, what did you say? What did you say? And that's a good question. What do you say? The little boy said, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I just sat there and helped him cry. You know, suffering people need to be able to weep and pour out their hearts and not be shut down by being told what to do. Next person is always involved and um, wants to be involved and not for good is our enemy, Satan. And before I say anything about Satan, I want to say that he is a formidable foe. He is, all, he is powerful. He's not all-powerful, but he is powerful. Only God is all-powerful. But he is out to destroy your faith, as we talked about. In these verses, Satan is kind of seen as, a, as an intruder. He is the accuser. He is our adversary. He accuses us. He, he's our, our enemy. So let's read um, Satan's proposal here. <clears throat> Chapter 1, starting in verse 6, and we'll read, through, um, read to verse 12. And this is an interesting little meeting here. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 2, I won't read all of chapter 2 because it's, a lot of it is repeated. Another scene happens, um, second time, between um, the Lord and Satan. And um, verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright, man fearing God and turn away from evil? And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. 
Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bones and his feet, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. <clears throat> so Satan is, is, is introduced as a drifter here without a home, who, who, who gives an account before God. The fact that he has to give an account before God um, shows that he is no way equal to God. There is not an equal power of good at war in the universe. God is all-powerful. Satan's character is rightly shown in these verses. Satan is real, and he is in direct opposition to God. He hates good, he hates God, he hates you, he hates me. He enjoys inflicting pain, he wants to frustrate the purposes of God. He's, He's evil, he's pure evil. He's a murderer, Jesus talked about him. He's a murderer, and he is proficient in scheming and lying and trickery and lying. He despises everything decent. As you probably realize, he does not come in a clothing a red suit with horns and a tail. Scripture directs us away from that because Scripture tells us he comes masquerading as an angel of light. He's a fake. And it says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So his, his prowling is not aimless. He has a target. His aim is to destroy, maim, and ruin your faith in God. He wants to bring disorder to our lives. Cynicism. This is the nature of the satanic. As I thought about that, I said, well, that's a warning for me. After so many years in law enforcement, it's easy to become a a cynic. Because all you see is mostly bad. But the warning here is when I fall to that kind of thinking, I've just succumbed to um, an attitude that Satan has, and I've been duped by him. Same for us. We look around the world today, and... Um, very little good we see or hear, right? Very, very little. So, what's going on? You know, another thing Cusa knows about um, religious people. He knows when somebody has a veneer of faith, maybe, a veneer of godliness, but have no heart for God. He sees through that. They're just in it for what they can get out of it. And what does he say here about Job? Does Job serve God for nothing? That's his first um, accusatory statement. You put a hedge around him, God. No wonder he served you. Look at all you've done for him. Then he comes back another time and says, well, that didn't work because Job didn't curse him. 
got to his face. So he comes back a second time, second meeting, and this time he said, well, skin for skin, skin for skin. You, you touch his health and he'll, he will curse you to your face. You touch his body. And so what's Satan implying here is that, you know, Job hasn't been hurt by all these calamities before because he only, he only cares about himself. Hear the accusing words? He says, allow me to touch his flesh and he will show his true character. Has Satan said the same things about us? Scary, isn't it? He has, I believe. He'll accuse us as much as he can. You know, hey, Corky's faith is just artificial. You hit him where it hurts, he'll show his true character. You know, his, his faith has never been tested like it should have been. You know, um, God's character and Job's are brought into question here by Satan. He's questioned their character. Questions? What, what do we think about this? What do we to ponder here? One is, a question is, is God so good that he can be loved for himself and just not for his gifts? Spurgeon said, are we just being strung along by a treat? Another question is, will a person hold on to God when there are no benefits attached? One scholar said, it is easier for us to lower our view of God than it is for us to increase our faith. But know this, Satan is on a leash. We see that right here. Satan can only do so much. He can only do, can't do anything without God permitting it. Satan does not have ultimate control. Here in the book of Job, God permits and restrains Satan to test Job. But he can only go so far and no further. And then we have God. Again, the design of the devil in your suffering is to destroy your faith. The design of God in all of suffering is to strengthen your faith. Satan works to destroy your joy and your treasuring God. God aims to magnify his worth in your life. God is sovereign. And simply put, God's sovereignty is an exercise, his exercise of power over all of creation. The idea that God created all things and now sits back and let us run as his course is false. God does reign over all the affairs of everyone, no matter what. God rules and reigns. It's been said before, but R.C. Sproul hit it on the head. There are no maverick molecules. Everything is controlled by God. In fact, Job talks of, of God. This is what he says about God in chapter 12, verse 13 through 16. Right in the middle of his suffering, 
and is complaining. He says, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The, de- the deceived and the deceiver are his. So we see here God, God's might is coupled with wisdom, counsel, and understanding. There is an intelligent purpose. There is an intelligent purpose to all of God's acts. His acts are deliberate, even if we can't understand them. The question we probably would have is, well, if God's so powerful, if he's so sovereign, um, why doesn't he prevent us from suffering? You know, Job sees only the good hand of God in the events of his life. Job had the same good opinion of God even when things go bad. Yeah, Job, Job's cry, Job had a cry, one of pain, he had a cry of despair, but he never had a cry of defiance. It is harder to say praise the Lord when he takes away than when he gives, isn't it? We're being honest. All things belong to God. Absolutely. All things are given by God as a gift. We have no claim on them. And when he takes them back, he does so without a wrong to us. Lord is sovereign, owner of all. And Job rejoices over this fact. You know, Job was not um, the servant he should be or could be. And God was going to enable him to become what he should be as a servant of his. God was going to Raise him up even more in greatness to reach that greatness. But the only way that God was going to do it, it was through suffering, through trials. That's the only way it could be attained, obtained. And so it is with us also. Let me close with these three thoughts. <clears throat> Number one, trials are not a reason to question God's character. Chapter 34, verse 12, it is unthinkable that God would, would, would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Whatever the answer to the problem of pain and suffering, it cannot be in an answer at the expense of the character of God. God's character does not change. And so our suffering must fit in what we know about God's character. Remember we said what we know, what we know. Back to James chapter 1, what we know, what we know about God's character. God's character is one of love, justice, righteousness, mercy, grace. 
with God, the characteristic of evil disappears. There's no such thing with God. Number two, trials teach us something about who we are. Chapter 36, verse 15 of Job. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. What does C.S. Lewis say about pain? God's megaphone. Suffering can open our ears and teach us things about ourselves that nothing else will. That's the way it was with Job. Suffering will lead us to see something about ourselves that otherwise we would not see. You know, it is God who saves. Adversity is the occasion that he uses. And number three, finally, trials teach us something about who God is. God is treating you like sons and daughters when we're suffering, when we're in pain. It is painful. It hurts. You were his child, and he loved you. He is conforming you more and more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and that is God's purpose. If we left it to ourselves, we would never reach that. We like status quo, don't we? I'm fine just where I'm at. God is not. And he will use anything in our lives to help us become more and more like his son. That's his purpose. You know, through trials, God is leading us to appreciate more and more and more of his mercy. May God bless the preaching of his word, as Pastor Paul would say.